there is little in the world that makes me more proud than to know this. My little sister is an emergency room doctor and she's crushing it. How to be a great ER doctor is thinking fast, being calm, nothing can get to you. And it was the height of gangs and crack epidemic, tons of gunshot wounds, tons of just terrible, terrible things. This is in Brooklyn? This is in Brooklyn. People were getting burned alive. I mean, it was it was bad. Um, very traumatic. It was terrible when the whole entire ER would smell like charred flesh. Like that was, I remember that. Like I can, I feel it viscerally, but not, it didn't phase me. That's my little sis, Dr. Mika, the chief medical officer of the Hoboken University Medical Center. I would have interviewed her for this show even if we weren't related because she's a massive success story who we can all probably learn something from. I'm Torre, and this is Torre's show where I'm talking to successful people about how they became successful and seeing what they know that can help you on your journey. I want to know what mindsets, tactics, and strategies help them get up the mountain in a variety of fields. I'm going to talk to people who are singers, CEOs, writers, entrepreneurs, painters, athletes, poker studs, to try to find more of the keys to success. In this ep, Dr. Mika talks about being an emergency room doctor in Brooklyn and in South Africa and in Jersey. And she also talks a lot about the challenges of climbing the corporate ladder. My sister can be really bossy and blunt and tough. She can ruffle some feathers. She's brilliant. And she has a very direct way of expressing herself. And sometimes those two things can create a problem. When she was rising up the ladder at the hospital, one of her mentors told her that her interpersonal skills needed to improve or she would not keep rising. So she started seeing an executive coach who gave her lots of gems that helped her navigate office politics. So in this conversation, there's a lot of great tactical information about dealing with office politics and dealing with the challenges of being a woman trying to rise, stuff that can be valuable to anyone in any field. I think you'll also hear in this ep a dream doctor who's smart and humble and meticulous and one who really believes in listening to patients and having a really nice bedside manner. Mika is a dream sister who would do anything for me at any time, but I tried to put all that aside and interview her as I would interview anyone when I met her in her office at the hospital. I mean, what do you do? I'm an emergency medicine physician, um, which means that I do a teeny bit of every single thing. And the type of doctor that people end up being is fits with their personality and it works well. I love short, intense bursts of human interaction. And so the world of emergency medicine fit that. Nothing grosses me out. Nothing bothers me at all. Um, you know, first month of medical school, you're, you're literally fit you know, knee deep in a cadaver. And I loved it. Like, got to tell you, once in a blue moon, I still open up my anatomy book from med school and can smell the formaldehyde. And it just brings me back with such good memories and feelings. Um, but uh, I'm an ER doctor. And to me, that means that uh, if you need me, I'll stop on the side of the road. If you come in with a heart attack, I know what to do with you. If you come in with severe abdominal pain, I know how to help you. If you're giving birth, I can do it. If you have a cold, I know how to do that. Whatever little thing you need. What are the inter? What are the personal qualities and the interpersonal qualities that you need to be a successful doctor? How to be a great ER doctor is thinking fast, 
being calm, nothing can get to you. You have to be able to operate in all types of circumstances. Um, and huge is multitasking. Huge. You at, it, Sometimes at night, you're the only per- – in some hospitals, you're the only person there for a bunch of patients. And you can have – I was on one night at one hospital, not here, but it had – a stab wound, a gunshot wound, a chest pain, someone who was just brought in by the police who was acting out over there and I had to treat all the with all the other patients that are still there. This all had just come in within 15 minutes. And you have to prioritize and treat. Everybody has different nurse. You have to talk to the different nurses. You have to still make sure everyone's okay. They all have family members. You're doing all this at the same time. Now, you're not alone. You're not an island. You have there's nurses. There's nurses. Yeah. There's techs. There's tons of people to be there and be your support at the same time and assist you with all your duties. But still, you are the captain of the ship. Yeah. You can't fall down. You can't mess up. You got to do this. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, you have to maintain this sort of calm mm-hmm. in the midst of chaos. Mm-hmm. That's very difficult. Oh, I find it fun. I think that's the most exhilarating. It's really fun to me to feel my heart racing and my mind is slow. And that's the best part is like, so I know inside me, my my sort of biophysical reaction is correct yeah. of, okay, here we go. Yeah, but at the same is... time, my mind is sharp and clear and I can see everything that's happening, everything that needs to happen and whatever is the next step. I got it. But I'm not crazy. Obviously, my heart's racing. Like I'm, I'm properly getting emotion. You know, excited. I mean, that's the sort of internal uh, chemistry mm-hmm. that great athletes talk about. You know, especially in something complex like football or basketball. There's a lot going on, high pressure. But you know, and my body is is energized and ready to go. But my mind is calm. Yeah. So how did you? How did you learn? To get into that state? Um, I don't think it's a learned behavior, um, at least in my case. Um, I would definitely say it's a – it's nature. Um, but the first time you walked into the ER – But I was like this before. I was like this when I was a kid. When I started really focusing on working in the ER that I can actually have a direct recollection of, I was – um, working in trauma and I, my focus was the trauma bay and my focus because that's where I was working was the trauma patient that came in and it was the height of gangs and crack epidemic tons of gunshot wounds tons of just terrible terrible things this is in Brooklyn this is in Brooklyn people were getting burned alive I mean it was it was bad um very traumatic it was terrible when the whole entire ER would smell like charred flesh like that was I remember that. Like I can – I feel it viscerally. But not, it didn't phase me. Is there a moment when you – you know, when you were presented with something and you succeeded at something, you're like, okay, I can see. I'm I'm a doctor now. I could do this. So crossing the line is what I call it. Mm-hmm. But when you are done with residency and you are officially in attending – that's when it gets real. It's your license on the line. It's your decisions. Now, of course, 
you have colleagues and friends that you can call, of course, but still it's your name on that chart, on that patient, your decisions, the way you talk to patients, what tests you order, how you interpret the tests, on and on. on. So that line is when you realize I'm a real doc. And the, the first, I don't remember the first shift I did as an attending because there's other doctors there. But I remember the first shift in the ER that I did completely by myself as an attending. Like I remember that. My boss had said, here's my cell phone. You will call me and it will be okay. Do not be afraid to call me because this is the scariest night you've ever had. It's you by yourself. Here you go. And I did call him at about four in the morning and I was trying to hold out till seven because the shift is from 7P to 7A. The last doctor leaves at 11. So from 11P to 7A, you're by yourself for the first time ever. Nobody's around. And it's in the middle of the night. Everybody else on the planet's asleep. Well, you know what I mean. And so I ended up calling him at four o'clock in the morning and I said, just want to run something by you. This is what this person has. This is what I did. Is this right? And he said, yes, you knew that. You didn't have to call me. I said, okay, thank you. Bye. <laughs> so those are the scary times. Um, but that's when you know it's real. You sound so when you describe it with such confidence, uh are you not feeling tremendous pressure? I guess I'm supposed to, but the answer is no. I mean, especially in the AR, lives are on the line. Correct. You wouldn't I mean, I would think there would be extraordinary pressure we gotta you know we gotta get this right this everything year. is I, I mean i i i guess but the answer is no i'm sorry i don't know if you want me to like i'm not nervous in the er we do see a lot of people that die um unfortunately it doesn't phase me much unfortunately because i've seen it a lot what phases me the most is someone that comes in looking good, walking, talking, conversation with me, and then in my time with them, they pass. That's the hardest because I've now seen what it looks like for you to have light in your eyes and I've seen the conversation. I've seen whatever you and I are having this moment. I've seen your soul and then within a couple hours, you don't have that anymore. And that's been intense. Um, one woman had um, what's called a AAA, which is an abdominal aortic aneurysm. So the huge artery that runs from your heart all the way down and, and goes everywhere away, carries blood everywhere. It's a nice big thing. If you lay down, put your hand on your stomach, you can hear it, feel it going boom, 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 boom. Um, it turned into a balloon. So the walls got loose and turned into a balloon. She had two – once it gets greater than a certain size, it might burst. She was 70-odd years old. Um, she had a choice of either living her life and one day it's going to burst or going under surgery to fix it and she might die on the table. So she decided, and it's her choice, and that's also hard a lot of times, is we need to empower you as the patient to understand everything, and you make your choice in life, and I will just support it. So she made her choice that she'd rather go bowling with her girlfriends every night. That's what she liked to do. 
than have surgery. Something happens, something happens. She'd rather be happy. So she came in with abdominal pain. She and I had a lovely conversation about her kids and her job, and she was still working and the bowling and this. She died with me at birth within four hours of her being there. And that was intense because I had such – she and I connected. She was sweet, sweet woman. So that I, I, that, that I had a moment with because um, that's hard to see someone's soul and life and spirit and then see it gone. And that's, that's rough. Years ago, I can't even pick a time, I'm going to say 20 years ago, you can still see it in movies that when there's a code going on, when we're trying to resuscitate a patient, you'd shut the family out, tell them to go away and we'll come get you and you go out to the waiting room and you say, I'm sorry, your loved one is dead and this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. Um, during my education and time, that's not what we do anymore. Um, we want you, the family member, to know what's going on. We want you, the family member, to see how hard we're working to understand the process. We want you to be there if the person passes. We don't want them to pass alone as us doing this academic process of working on you and trying to revive you. Um, so it, it gets a lot more emotional and intense because there you are with the nurses and the other doctors and respiratory and all of this working on a patient and the wife is in the room with you. And most places have some sort of spiritual pastoral care. So they're usually with their arm around the, the, the family member, making sure they're okay, sitting them down if needed. But they're right there. So everything that comes out your mouth has to be correct. You, you know, you, you, you have to even have the total appearance that you're doing everything right. Um, because there's the family. And they should be there. They should be in the room and experiencing this terrible, horrific thing with everyone together, um, whether the person survives or not, they're there. But that just makes it so much more intense for you as the doctor and you as the provider or the nurse of every moment that you're doing things. There's your pressure. There is the survivor. And you want to revive this person even more for that person who's living. Part of what you're talking about is a shift a cultural shift, perhaps, in uh, the doctor's approach to the bedside manner. And I think you've talked about this mm -hmm. before. The generation before you was a little more academic, a little colder, mm -hmm. a little more superior. Mm -hmm. um, and you and your generation is trying to be more humane, mm -hmm. let the family in, right? Sure. And right. talk about the, the change in approach and the change in impact that you think it's had? Um, the change in approach is also due to the more intelligent consumer of having patients aren't coming in just saying, doctor, I'll believe whatever you say anymore. Um, patients, they're very intelligent patients. They know things. So we need to provide them with more information. It is my job to help you to understand how I'm treating you, why I'm treating you, and why it's right or wrong. Do you feel like you spend more time listening, spend more time sort of holding hands, holding people's hands, and just being that sort of calming force where the previous generation looked down on that? I would say that uh, maybe up to... 60 to 70% of the patient interaction is the other stuff. 
than the actual medicine. 60 to 70 percent is just humane, basically hand-holding, hand-holding, hugging. explanation, important stuff, whether it's about it could be a conversation about insurance of you have this insurance. This is what that you have to call your insurance company to do it this way and that way. This medication, um, no, it's good. Why am I giving you this one instead of this one? Instead of just back in the day, take this drug and see me next year. We're not like that anymore. You talk about your bossiness, mm-hmm. which has always been part of you. Yes, sir. Um, that is something that you had to wrestle with. As you were moving up the mm-hmm. corporate ladder, right, and uh, you know, and I, I did too. I'm not bossy, but you know, I had similar interpersonal things that I had to wrestle with. How did you deal with that challenge for you? Because it was you were on track to becoming the head of the hospital, and you had complaints from other folks that you had to take seriously. To not derail your upward movement. So what did you do? How did you deal with it? What what came at you? How did you deal with it? How did you get past it? I had a lot of complaints. And um, some were purposefully trying to keep me down. Mm-hmm. Um, some people didn't mesh well with me. And so purposefully they were doing some very not pleasant backstabbing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was racial or s- sexual. I had no idea, but it was it was not nice. Mm-hmm. Um, other people, we just didn't mesh. They just didn't get along, and they didn't want me to tell them what to do, and it just wasn't going well. Um, they would complain to my boss, and eventually my boss said, we want to promote you, but we can't right now. Um, and so you're either going to change or you're not, and that's going to depend upon you. Um, so I ended up getting an executive coach. And um, I was very lucky um, and then I found an executive coach that ended up sort of like a spiritual life coach. So we had these sessions that I had no idea we were going to have, which kind of looked at daily experiences and other things and other ways to be. Um, But an executive coach, you don't walk – you know, I worked with her for about six months. She did a 360. I had a very hard time. I had to – pick uh, five people who I knew I got along with really well and five people who I didn't get along with very well. And I had them do an evaluation of me and I had to read it. And then about a year later, I had to go back and have them redo the same evaluation and sit with them one-on-one and talk about how it was. Uh, the return, the hearing the evaluation, some of that was hard, especially the people that were intentionally mean to me. Um, but going back to some of the people was also very interesting and I got glowing remarks all over. Um, but then you, you, it's like taking a magic pill. You walk out and go, Hey, I'm better now. I'm improved. I'm not as bossy. I'm wonderful. I know how to listen. I know how to do that. Of course that's not true. You slip back into your old ways quickly. Um, I do have a lot of bossy characteristics. I do – some of it is, of course, my upbringing. Some of it is um, my ER training. ER training is not always a good thing for leadership. Mm. I need answers now. I need it now. I need it now. The patient's dying. I need to get this done. I need to get that done. Let's do this quickly. Boom, boom, boom. I'm used to calling out orders in the ER. That's that's how – when it's a tough situation, that's what you do. You can't do that in leadership. 
I'm used to relying on myself and getting it all done. You can't do that in leadership. You need to get everyone together, get a consensus. You can't dictate what to tell people what to do and dictate orders. You need people to be on your side. And the way you do that is a good back and forth and an understanding and an explanation and forward, forward progress or else no one's going to want to come with you on this path and on this journey. Um, that took me a while. It's not always easy to learn how to trust people that are reporting to you. And that takes some time. So I had a great uh, executive coach. I, she's amazing. We had a great time. I still keep in touch with her on a regular basis. Um, but having a year of an executive coach is not a magic pill. Yeah. And, and you slip back into sometimes still not saying the right thing. And then you have to be reminded, wait, what would – her name was Eden. So what would Eden have said? What would Eden do? And all of that. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First.
Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. What are some of the tactics and strategies that she suggested to you that made a difference? So um, I am a fiery type of person. Things get me excited. I get um, in, in a good way. And then when things start to get me excited, I now talk a lot faster. And then I jump ahead to, I go from A to Z when the rest of the room hasn't even done it yet. And it's not a good look. So part of it was to slow down. Like, let people go with you on the train. You don't have to meet, have people meet you at the finish. Let's all do this together. In and terms of getting to the idea. Getting to the idea, getting to the process. So a big part of it was take your hands, put them in your lap. My hand's on the table and I start moving them. And then all of a sudden I'm, I feel this excitement and I'm all of this. Just quiet. Your, this was what I, I'm not saying everybody else needs to do. This is what I needed to do. Putting my hands in my lap made me quieter so I can listen more. I need to hear what you're saying to make sure that what I'm saying will jive with what you need and what you want. And if it doesn't, I need to be able to hear you so that I know how to speak to you and how to speak to my audience. And when my hands are moving and I'm like getting excited and I'm about to stand up and I can't sit still and I'm just so energized by the moment, I can't hear anything else. So I need to quiet my physical body so that my mind is truly listening. So that's one of the tactics that, and again, this is not for everyone, but this is what, what worked for me. Um, little things like, which is a Sheryl Sandberg, and it's in most leadership meetings, most leadership books is have pre-meetings. Pre-meetings is the most important thing you can have. Like, please have pre-meetings. You need other people on your side with what you're, you, you, you should not go, unless you just get excited and blurt it out, but you should not go into a meeting or in a room without having one person on your side. So you've got to get somebody on your side Always. before you even walk in the room. You have, you have to have a pre-meeting. Hey, this is what I think. What do you think? And if everyone says no, then, you're, then you've got to come up with a different tactic. What else did she teach you? When you have moments of doubt and when other people are against you um, and you're like the confidence, most confident person in the world and you have to go through this executive leadership thing, um, your confidence goes down. You start feeling insecure. So a big part of it is don't let this break you. Don't change who you are. Just alter the way you speak to people. So there have been – there was one time in the middle of the process where something came up in a meeting I happened to be the only woman in the room. Something came up in the meeting and I answered the question and spoke to the people in the room with an emotional answer of that's not what I believe everybody wants. And it wasn't about money. It wasn't about the bottom line. It wasn't about this. It was about people want more than that. So it was a, it was a fluffy type of answer. But that was me. I'm telling you what I think. It doesn't matter all these. So I was actually spoken to after the meeting to say, if you want to be listened to, you should not speak from your heart. You should not sound so emotional when you talk. 
So, and if I hadn't, if Eden hadn't said, still be yourself, still be strong, whatever you believe is what you believe, I would have said, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. You know, and I said, no, that's what I feel. If you people, you men in the room can't handle that that moment I was feeling emotional and I thought that was the right thing, that we do need an emotional touch, that we do need to make sure that and all of our employees feel loved, that that's important, not just the bottom line, then I'm sorry, then you don't get it. But that, if that's how I feel, then that's what I'm going to say. And so they're like, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. That drives toward what I want to, part of what I want to dig out of this is, how did you manage to become the head of a hospital? I don't, a, I don't know. A pretty big hospital. <laughs> It's a it's a good it's a big hospital it's a good hospital I'm I'm very proud. Um, As a young woman, I um it's taken some people to believe that I have what it takes. Um, I am extremely determined, extremely persistent. I'm I'm smarter than I look, and <laughs> which is a good thing. And um, it takes some time to win people over, but I've done it because I'm, I, I don't have the, uh, softer voice because I don't have any problem speaking my mind because I have no problem telling you I'm not done talking. Um, I didn't, I never had those issues. That's not how I was raised, um, to be the quiet, respectful woman. Right. So having a man try to talk over me ain't going to happen. Um, trying to decide, ooh, am I sitting at the back or the Sheryl Sandberg sit at the table? That was never a question. See at the table? I'm sitting there. I'm not sitting at the back. I'm sitting right here. I'm sitting at the front. It's what I'm doing. Um, uh, having the people – I love it when um, – People who are in a different field are explaining something and they have to explain it really slowly because they think you don't understand and they use the simple words. Sorry, not that girl. So in two seconds, I will tell them what the last chapter of the book that they're trying to tell me says. But that's then they don't like that because now it's the woman telling them what to do. So... I will slowly tell them how to get to the middle of the book so they get that they understand that I know what I'm talking about and then we can move forward. I appreciate that lean in and the lean in uh, movement works for a lot of women. It didn't work for me because – Because you didn't need – I didn't need to learn how to lean in. Well, you were already leaning I in. was already way too far. <laughs> but when you say something from your experience and your knowledge and your education – and a man who has status in this world says, basically, I disagree with you. I don't believe you. Subtext, because you're a woman. What do you do? Okay. So let's be honest. I've had more problem with – in that regard, I've had more problem with women mm -hmm. than with men. In that, with men, I've had more problem looking at me in a sexual manner. Really? And being like, oh, you're so pretty or oh, you're too pretty or oh, people will believe you more if you're pretty. I've had that. But in terms of questioning what I'm saying and questioning my background or looking down upon me that's in certain ways, that's from women. I don't get that as much from men. 
men, um, I will tell them what I know, have the background. Now, mind you, I don't speak without some, I I know what I'm talking about and I will not say something. And if I do say something that doesn't have background, doesn't have basis, I will let you know. I'm not sure why I believe this, but this is what I think. And I will go find out some research to find out if this is true. You give me the data, I'll put it together. I got it in two seconds. I'll have it for you tomorrow. And that's always a fact. But it's the women that I've gotten more questioning from. Well, let's let's deal with both sides of that. People not believing what you're saying, largely because it's coming out of a female body, mm-hmm. what do you do? What have I done in the past is try to win them over outside the meeting on a personal level. Try to connect with them in some way personal so they understand I'm not a bimbo, nor am I a threat. Like, we can do this together. Um, sometimes you have to figure out what it is. Most of the time, the women think you're a threat for whatever it is. With, for in my circumstances, it's never been their own job, but it's their territory, whatever that is. Um, they've been the queen of their territory. And now here I am trying to question their territory or trying to make other comments and they want to roar. Um, so I will try to bond with them outside of the boardroom and kind of gain. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In them as an ally, both sides. And that's worked. And also, it, some people, it just hasn't worked. And you're like, nothing I can do about it. And therefore, you learn not to go against them in a boardroom. because it. So with the, the men's side. How do I put it? I have no problem with not being one of the boys. And I don't want to be treated like one of the boys. That's not who I am. So it's not as though I'm like, oh, I'm not one of the boys. Oh, no, please take me to the ball game. I don't care. Doctoring is the profession second most likely to commit suicide. Oh, what's the first? I don't know. I didn't look it up. 
Sorry. I didn't, I didn't click on what's the first. I was just, and female doctors in particular are over twice the suicide rate for an average person. Why is that? Why are so many doctors committing suicide? It's almost one a day. Wow. I didn't know that. That's high. Um, I, I don't know. Um, we recently started a burnout committee, which I now change it to called Sunshine Committee. Um, after the slew of shootings and suicides in the city over the past couple of years from medical students, residents, and then what happened at, um, at the hospital in the city, um, I did a survey of the doctors here and the number, there were a couple things. It's like they want more nights and weekends off. That's often hard for doctors. I can't do anything about that. Um, but something else that a lot of doctors felt was that there's not enough appreciation and recognition for what they do. Hmm. And sometimes a good thank you is kind of all you need. And so I think that um, I can see that for female doctors, you, especially ones with um, children and f- husbands at home, you are giving, giving, giving. And it feels very thankless and it might feel very draining. Um, and that would suck. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're starting something here that increases the recognition and appreciation for physicians um, as well as here. There we go. That little thing. You have a little yellow, a little yellow fish, fish on your. So it's an someone caught me doing something good, and so other people in the hospital will nominate you of saying, "I saw you doing something good, and I appreciate you for that." And it ends up being slightly adorably ceremonial, and it sounds stupid as heck. And here's a stupid little pin on my lanyard. But you just it just make that it makes you feel good. And that's what you need is to know that you're making a difference and people actually care about what you do while you're doing it. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Okay. Craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, I've seen some typical dirty things of people putting things in certain places. Someone slipped and fell on a band roll-on. And it went where? It went up their butt. (laughs) <laughs> doctor their butt <laughs> their butt um, <laughs> so I've seen some, some band roll on in the butt they slipped they slipped and you fell you believe that you believe that yes they slipped and fell <laughs> so I've had a couple people that have slipped and fallen on things which has always been very interesting um, but still my the weirdest was um, <clears throat> I was in Brooklyn gunshot wound victim larger Spanish man um and there was blood everywhere, blood everywhere. And he's going, ah, blood everywhere. Uh, so we look at his belly and there's tons of gunshot wounds, tons of holes all over his belly. We don't waste time. We take him right to the operating room, put him right to sleep so we could open him up because we got to fix his belly because all these gunshot wounds, you know, went inside and like messed up his intestines and oh my God, we got to fix this quickly because if not, his intestines are going to be every, you know, it's going to be a mess. We open him up. Huh. His belly is beautiful, gorgeous. Liver's there, intestines are there, not one drop of blood inside. Perfect. I mean, gorgeous. Wait a minute. He has 10 
bullet holes in his belly, 10 of them. What is going on? We take a Q-tip with a string. Put the Q-tip with the string through each and every of the bullet holes. He had such a fat little belly that each of the bullet holes just went through his belly. Just went through the fat, did not go inside in the intestines. We sew him up. He's now on the floor, wakes up the next morning. I sit in his bed. I'm doctor, because now he's meeting me for the first time. I'm Dr. So-and-so. Let's talk about it. What happened? Yo, man, you know, I was with this girl. And we were at her house. And her man came home. (laughs) And her man came home. (laughs) And I'm lying on the bed when he sees me. And he goes, pow, 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 shoots me. So there he is, lying flat. Bullets go right across this. He jumps out of bed, jumps out the window. Whoa. Goes, <laughs> his friend drives him to the hospital. And there he is. I go, you're the luckiest man ever. <laughs> Guess he's going to stay fat because that was just that <laughs> belly just and then saved his saved life. His, saved the his life. Saved his life. They all had telling him to go to the gym. No, don't go to the gym. Drink don't go more to the gym. Beer. Drink, drink it. Eat drink more it. fried food. Make it happen. Never a dull moment in a hospital. One of the things that really resonated with me was when she talked about being in the ER and having an excited body but a calm mind. That's the zone that athletes talk about, but that state is valuable to any of us who have to work and perform in chaotic situations. When the body is in an elevated state and has that adrenaline going, you can move faster. And if you can couple that with a calm mind that's working on slowing things down around you, Then you can see and think with clarity while moving as fast as you possibly can. And in that state, you can do amazing things. Thanks so much to my little sister for giving me a great interview. So proud of you. And thanks so much to you for listening. If you want to talk to me more about this show or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, the baddest place in the world, and we'll be back next week with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next Wednesday when my guest will be poker stud David Williams, who's raked in over $9 million playing poker. She once played a tournament on the computer where she took a sticky paper and put it on top of her monitor where you see your whole cards, where your cards you're dealt. So she would never know what she had. And she played the tournament strictly bait. And this is even online. So there's actually not physical people in front of you to get a read on if they're nervous or not. Strictly based on betting patterns. So what the people are betting and how much they're betting and how often they have been playing hands. Like watching their tendencies. Like, okay, this guy's playing a lot of hands. This guy's not. And she played a tournament with a sticky tape or a sticky paper over her screen where she could never see her own cards. And she won the tournament online. That premieres next Wednesday on Torre Show. 